We are in the study of Acts, and uh, we are looking uh, at the first chapter, and we are talking about this in the context of a revolution. And, uh, and I know that that can seem like a marketing scheme for a sermon series, uh, but the reality is, because of what we talked about at the end of Ephesians, that we do really war against princes and principalities that seem to have immense power in this world, the notion of Jesus' kingdom coming can be seen as nothing less than a revolution. It is a revolution that establishes the true and right king on his throne and his ethic, his character, his kingdom, his salvation throughout the world. But if we at any time begin to doubt the idea that this is not revolutionary, it is largely because we have become way too comfortable with the normal ways in which we are encouraged to accept the way things are. And the revolution that Jesus brings when He defeats sin and death, and as He ministers His entire life, is one in which a whole new way of living becomes possible and modeled And then, we are given the very heart and ability to do so. And so we take this opportunity in this series to talk about the revolution of heaven coming down to earth. And God dwelling among His people. And yes, Jesus has ascended and we're going to talk about that. But of course, we're looking forward to in a couple of days the reality of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit being poured out in such a way that our connection with God and the place that He dwells becomes so intimate that God actually dwells in us and among us. That heaven is coming here. That God is going to restore and build His kingdom. We were talking a little bit in Sunday school this morning about one of the ways that can change the way we look. And again, if we think And I was laughing at one of our songs about something being built someplace else. But if we think about the reality that God is going to renew this earth, there's a part of me that doesn't have to worry about going someplace to see some grand part of creation. I don't have to see K2 and Everest in this lifetime. That I will be able to enjoy the grandeur of the mountains of Tibet in the new heavens and the new earth in my glorified body. That I don't have to get it all done this go-round. Because this place is going, and I don't even know what it's going to be, but it's going to be amazing. That heaven is coming here and we are in the process of participating in that amazing and glorious transformation of God's creation into its original beauty and intention. And so this morning we look at the disciples staring up into the sky looking after Jesus, and part of the ways in which we are tempted today to keep looking up. But where would God have us look? So this morning we're going to put 7 through 14 in front of us. Chapter 1, 7 through 14. Hear now God's Word. And He said to them, It's not time for you to know, uh, sorry, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. The cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, 
when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, and James, and Andrew, and Philip, and Thomas, and Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have shown us the glory of who you are. We ask that as we see again the beauty of our God in the works of your hands, we pray that we would be encouraged to be a part of that work, and to trust in your spirit that you can and will use us for your good. That you are transforming us even now. We pray, Lord, that whatever is said this morning that is not useful for the building up of your people or true would quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So we look at this passage, and I was thinking of a meme that I saw where it was a picture of a gorgeous sunset And the little line underneath it was, do you wonder if the first person who saw a sunset had a thought like, this can't be good? Right? The first time the thing goes down, you're wondering if it's going to come back. And there's a way in which the disciples are looking at this and and seeing Jesus ascend, and they keep looking up after him, and they've been giving the rather not helpful answer that it's not for you to know when I'm coming back or when this is all going to happen, but I will provide for you the Holy Spirit, which is partially a good answer, but certainly one that as a human being is incomplete. I'd like to know when this is going to be over. I'd like to know when the sun is going to come up. I don't like ambiguity. I don't like not having an answer. It makes me insecure and uncomfortable. It's not surprising that they might look up longingly, that they might have gone with him, or that he hadn't left at all. And yet it had to happen, because the way that God orchestrated creation and redemption is one in which we participate as image bearers. We are not able to do it in and of ourselves, we don't have the power to do it, but nonetheless we are part of it. And he delights to give us his power to do so. But the challenge, of course, is how do we do it? And where do we look for the resources to do it? Where do we look for the ability to do it? Where are our eyes supposed to be? And so this morning, a couple of ways in which we can look in the wrong direction and then where we look uh, to for our strength and future. First of all, looking back. Second of all, looking up. Thirdly, looking through. So first, looking back. There is a tendency, if you look back, if you look back, in Luke 24, uh, when Jesus is transfigured and the two great men, Moses and Elijah, 
are present with Jesus, the disciples' tendency, much like all humanity, is let's build little booths for you. Let's stay here. God has come here. These two great men are here. We have this amazing place. It's, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Let's stay here. Because we know what's back down there. But to be in your presence and to learn from you, how amazing it would be to sit at their feet and learn from them. There are many wonderful ways in which we can imagine that it's a good idea to stay there. And of course, Jesus says, absolutely not. Jesus doesn't stay up on the hill. He's transformed and transfigured that the disciples might know where they're headed. But you don't stay on the mountain. You don't build a monument to some great event that happened in that place. It tends to be our practice as people is that we think back to something great that happened and we build monuments to it whether they were religious or military but we look back at something in some time when things were better or grander or more stable the illusion that somehow we would have followed Moses better you can just imagine the disciples going but there's Moses and we would have been Moses we'll listen to Moses unlike our great-great-grandparents, or a lot more greats. Or Elijah, wow, what a brilliant prophet. We would have been the ones who listened to Elijah. We would have understood, we would have sat there, we look back and we lament that we weren't a part of that grand day. We build monuments to it. We wish things were like that again. But the reality is there's no looking back. The kingdom of God is moving forward, and what's back there are just different forms of sin, different forms of weakness, different forms of trying to be our own Savior. And God, we are reminded that this looking back does not bring us into the kingdom. There were hints, there were ways in which we can see the kingdom forming, but looking back does not give us anything more than a memory and often a rather distorted memory at that. Luke 24, which was not the trans... Jesus leads his disciples back out. The transformation happens not just in a physical glowing way, but in their very hearts and lives and in creation. Jesus will come back to do what he told us he will do. But in the meantime, we walk down the mountain back into the world, not looking back. I was wrestling with ways in which you can think about this and apply it and how we can lament the past and wish we were back there. And it can be everything from the simple days when I had four little kids running around my house and remembering those as wonderful days, and they were, and wishing we could go back because then everything was manageable. I mean, as manageable as four children are, but it seemed like they were, at least they were all in the same place. They weren't in New York and in San Antonio and in Kansas 
and in Ohio dealing with problems that I can't even begin to help them with from a distance. And I lament and remember those days when I could just keep it all within my hands. And then if I really remember what that was like, there was nothing in my hands there either. And it's that temptation. And of course, there's wonderful ways in which we look back and celebrate those times. I'm not talking about enjoying reflections of history and times and wonderful memories. But it's that inability to look forward that only looks back to something that was, that begins to idolatrize it. And we find ourselves not able to live in the moment that God has us. So we look back. But there's also looking up. And there's a way in which as they look up, they don't have to look out and see the darkness and the difficulties around them. If my eyes are only up towards heaven, if I only think of the divine, if I only think of escape and wanting to be taken up with Jesus at that moment, I'm tempted in the same way as the disciples were to to look up And of course, what do the two people do when they appear? The two angels show up and they go, why are you looking up? Go do what he told you to do. And I need to be reminded that there are temptations when I see the darkness around us. One of the great challenges, we were warned last week that as we enter into safe families and as we enter into these people's lives, many of them we wouldn't normally have connection with or just tangential connection with we're going to find out about some difficulties and some sins and ways people have been victimized generation, perhaps after generation. One abuser uh, abusing the victim then becoming an abuser in the next generation and some of those horrible trains that follow through that we may be means of seeing severed and broken and new patterns created but you are going to see and hear things that you don't want to see and hear nobody wants to but we may need to it may be part of our calling to see things that God came to redeem but at this point are still dark and ugly and terrifying There is a real temptation to look up, to avoid the darkness and the hard difficulties and realities of this world, to become those who are so spiritually minded that they are no earthly good. Longing to escape. And I fall into that all the time. That temptation, a desire to just slide back into the office and to study and to read which I'm supposed to do. I get paid to do. It's wonderful. But the reality is I can distance myself from you and your pain under the guise of doing my job in preparing for my next sermon. There are ways in which I'm tempted to use good things as a way of protecting me from having to engage in those things that are unnerving. I look up because I don't want to look to the right And to the left, because of what I might see and what that might require of me, because I've seen it. I'm drawn to Matthew 25 and the goat saying, when did we see you? 
the excuse being, if we would have seen it, we would have done something. One might ask, well, what were you looking at if you didn't see them? What were you looking at? So what do we do? Well, I would suggest and contend that according to the passage, we look through. If you go up a little further, I didn't read uh, verse 3, but Jesus reminds them of his suffering. Uh, Luke calls to mind the suffering of Jesus and why he had to do all these things. So Jesus' resurrection, he spends this time with his disciples and he's telling them about why he had to do all those things, connecting dots from his previous teaching before the crucifixion. So what do we do? We live a cruciform life. We live a life formed by the cross and the empty tomb. Our vision, our uh, lens, our ability to look out around us is looking through the cross. It both reminds us of the unbelievable, unconditional love of God who takes all of the darkness and evil and sin in the world upon himself to such a degree that it separated him in some fashion from the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did that out of love for you and me. And every time I look through the world through the cross, if I look at the world through the cross, I am reminded of Christ's love for me. And the fact that I could not have done it on my own, that it is by grace alone, the cross reminds me of the grace and love of God as I look at the world around me. But it's not just my own personal salvation, which is a wonderful gift, but looking through the cross reminds me that part of our calling is Christ's calling, to die for the other. Emotionally, preferentially, financially. Perhaps sometimes even physically, as the martyrs have done. As I look through the world, through the cross, I know that the world is suffering. The cross itself is suffering. It signifies, it is a reality of suffering. How can I look out at the world and not recognize that suffering will be a part of my engagement in the world? Because it was Christ's engagement in the world. And it may be dramatic, or it may be just the daily sufferings, of bearing one another's burdens, of love covering a multitude of sins in my marriage, and being forgiven by my spouse for the things that I do consciously or unconsciously that are unthoughtful and uncaring. And we think, well, this marriage is supposed to be glorious and perfect, and God did it. And so we don't imagine that marriage itself in a real way is suffering. Because I'm dying to self and living for another. Because I live with a sinner who sins against me. And I against her. I look at the life of being a parent. And I recognize it is suffering. To love a young baby. And to know the difficulties of the world that they will face. And wanting to protect them. And knowing I can't. And all of the challenges that we all face when we hold that child in our arms. How can we see the world as anything but, through the lens of the cross, suffering? And I don't always understand why people suffer. When I see it around the world and I think, my stars, I could have as easily been born in Bangladesh as I was in Westminster, Colorado. Why them, not me? But the cross allows me to look through that suffering and realize that God is not blind to that suffering. In fact, the cross tells me that God is anything but blind to suffering. 
He sees it more clearly than I do. And if I can just begin to look through his lens of seeing the world through the suffering of the cross and his passion, I might be able to trust even in greater degrees that a God who's been merciful to me will be merciful to those in need. We look through the lens of the cross and the resurrection. It's not just suffering, but that there is an end to it. The resurrection tells me that there is an end to suffering. Jesus getting up, being transformed in such a way that he has a body and eats fish and yet is also very different. There's a promise there of a transformed existence and life in which suffering will not dictate my daily existence in this world. Jesus was resurrected here. Because this place matters. Because there's promise for new life in this place because of what Christ has done. We look through the cross. How do we prepare? How do we do that? Well, it is what the disciples do. We'll talk about this more next week. But what do they do? They go to the upper room and they start praying. They gather together to pray that they might know and understand what God would have them do, how they would do it. They pray for strength and spirit because if it's true that they're going to live a cruciform life, a life transformed and dictated to by the very cross itself, my stars are we going to need the Holy Spirit. How are we going to look on that pain and darkness in our own souls, let alone in what others do to humanity? Particularly as they are rejecting their Savior. As Jesus says, if men do this in the light... As they betray him, he faces injustice and a mock trial and is crucified. If they do this in the light, what will they do in the darkness? And the disciples were about to head into very long periods of darkness and persecution. And the only light would be the Spirit and the truth of who God is. They come together and they pray. They don't know that this week... It's back to God instructs as our headings, but we're kind of going back and forth to using those headings in your worship folder. You'll notice the last couple of weeks they were prayers again. We talk about different kinds of prayer. Worship is prayer. Prayers of, of, of rejoicing. Prayers of lament. Prayers for instruction and power. Prayers for provision as we come to the Lord's Supper. We are always engaged in prayer when we come to worship, and every element of our worship service is a form of prayer. Because prayer is the way we listen to and engage with and speak our needs and celebrations to God. To have the vision and the eyes to see through the cross will require lives of prayer, as you all know. It's how Jesus lived. It gives us the strength and sometimes the courage to see what is around us. By the Holy Spirit, we will find increasingly in our life of prayer that we are not looking back or up for Jesus, but we are moving forward in time and space towards the ever-revealing kingdom looking through the eyes of Jesus, seeing people and creation and sin and glory the way Jesus sees them. What an exciting opportunity to see the world 
in ever greater degrees the way Jesus sees the world. That's part of the vision, that's part of the promise of the Holy Spirit is to see the world the way Jesus sees the world. That's our calling, that's our hope, that's our joy. That's what we pray for, that we might see our Savior and the world as our Savior sees it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask again that you might be merciful to the preaching of your word. Lord, our sight is so limited. Even in our best moments of seeing in and through you, we still are impeded in our vision. We pray, Lord, that in ever greater degrees by your Spirit we might see more clearly the light of day and the promise of the kingdom and its reality. May we delight in it. May we participate in it. May we share it. In Christ's name, amen.